Today's Daily DVR Drive-In is sponsored by our presenting sponsor, Cufflinks.com. If you have an event coming up, go to Cufflinks.com. You can use code DVR20 now to save 20% off your order. They have cufflinks, belts, ties, socks, money clips, all that kind of stuff, bags, you name it, NCAA, NBA, Marvel, Star Wars, man, it's cufflinks.com. Go to cufflinks.com slash DVR today. Welcome back to Daily DVR Drive-In. That's right, it's the second episode. Today, our movie is Adaptation by Spike Jones. My name is Axel, and my co-pilot in the passenger seat tonight is Brett. If you're new to us, check us out at DVRpodcast.com, and why not consider becoming a patron? Support the podcast. Send your feedback, or if you have an idea for a movie, and if you want to come on the show, send it to DVRpodcast at gmail.com. Just want to remind everyone, we're covering Big Little Lies, Jenny and I, every Wednesday, and every Monday and sometimes Friday, Ken and I are covering Veronica Mars. We're going back and we're doing all three seasons. We already did the first season, a two-parter. We're recording the second season tomorrow. It's going to be released, I think, Monday. And then we're going to do the third, the movie, and the fourth season when it premieres on Hulu July 26th. So stick with us. Subscribe to that feed. It's out there. Stitcher, Apple Podcast, all that stuff. You can subscribe to that. Now I'm done talking about that other stuff. We're going to talk about it. I am excited because this movie, you know, John had the idea for this and then he sent in his movie and then Brett sent in adaptation and Brett's here to talk about it. So I'm going to let Brett say hello. How are you doing, pal? I'm doing great, Axel. It's always a pleasure to be on with you. Very excited to talk about this movie. And I wanted to shout out John Wambacher for this brilliant idea of the uh, drive-in DVR podcasts. Um, as soon as I heard of this idea, I think I emailed you like within a few hours of you posting it yeah. saying, Oh, what a great idea. And yeah, I want to talk about this movie. So it worked out well. It did, man. It's a cool idea. And I hope we keep on doing it. And I think we will since I'm going to do it. So <laughs> I guess it's up to me. So actually, right on. After this, I have scheduled, and I hope we, I, I hope we uh, follow through, and I think we will. Um, my old friend Devin, who worked it with me at World of Video, is going to cover the Battle of Algiers, and Kellum sent in that request, and I had to dive deep into someone I knew that had like a great film mind and film history. And Devin is going to blow everyone away. We just had a whole conversation about film and stuff, and it was fantastic. It inspired me for this movie. Um, so we're going to be talking about adaptation. She hates me. She's disappointed. I could see it in her eyes when we met. I've got to stop sweating. Oh, she looked at my hairline. She thinks I'm bald. She's thinking I would never in a million years sleep with this guy. We think you're great. Oh, thanks. Wow, that's that's nice to hear. To begin, coffee would help me think. Coffee and a muffin. I'm going up to Santa Barbara this Saturday, and I I was wondering. Oh. I'm 
sorry. So I'll just be right back with your pie then. Drum roll, please. I'm gonna be a screenwriter, like you. I'm putting in a chase sequence. So the killer flees on horseback, cops after them on a motorcycle. And it's like a battle between motors and horses, like technology versus horse. Susan, we would really like to option this. You want to make it into a movie? I want to know what it feels like to care about something passionately. John LaRoche is a tall guy, sharply handsome. The book has no story. There's no story. Make one up. Okay, we open with LaRoche. No, we open at the beginning of time. Okay, we open with LaRoche. Crazy white man. We open on Charlie Kaufman. Fat, bald, ugly, paces. No! I've written myself into my screenplay. That's kind of weird, huh? I guess we thought that maybe Susan and LaRoche could fall in love. I just don't want to ruin it by making it a Hollywood thing. It's like I don't want to cram in sex or guns or car chases or characters overcoming obstacles to succeed in the end. She's crying. What's she hiding from? I think you actually need to speak to this woman to know her. People find love. People lose it. Every day, someone somewhere takes a conscious decision to destroy someone else. Who's gonna play me? I think I should play me. This is the movie, a lot of people probably remember it as the movie where Nicolas Cage played twin brothers who were Charlie Mm -hmm. Kaufman and his fictional brother, Donald. Uh, Mm -hmm. That's right. Charlie Kaufman does not actually have a brother, Donald. Um, It's adapted from the book, The Orchid Thief by Susan Orlean, who expanded it from her New Yorker article. And I'll I'll read the kind of uh, Brett was great enough to write out and or and or cut and paste a uh, description. Nicholas Cage plays identical twin brothers, neither of which have any distinguishing features, yet you can still clearly tell them apart. Nominated for the Oscar for Best Actor, uh, they play. Oh well, wait. I thought it was a little description, but what, you cut me off. You didn't. Uh, you, you didn't. Uh, Go through with that, did you, Brett? I didn't get the nah, whole description. That was just my own like typing. <laughs> that was not a good I gave you too much credit off the off the top. <laughs> so basically, they play the screenwriter Charlie Kaufman. It's really him, and it's his journey of adapting a book which seems unadaptable, The Orchid Thief, and he struggles as a screenwriter basically to write something that he feels will be true. Right? Yes. That expresses the truth and the feeling of this book without any of those kind of cheap Hollywood um, dramatic actions within within his story. And that's basically where we find ourselves with this film directed by Spike Jones, released December 6th, 2002. I cannot mm. even believe that, man. <laughs> <laughs> 17 years ago, written by Charlie Kaufman, of course, and his fictional brother. What made you pick this movie? Uh, I think ever since I first saw it, it's it's been one of my favorite movies. It just uh, was just a totally different movie from anything I'd seen before. 
just the the very meta aspect of you following along with Charlie struggling to write the screenplay of the movie that you're watching. Like, you know, I was in on the joke immediately. So it was hilarious, but uh, I don't know. It just, uh, it just kind of floored me and it's, I guess, creativity and originality. And uh, I saw it, I want to say like either my senior year of college or right after college, and uh, I don't know. It's just it just hit the sweet spot with me. Yeah, this is one. It's funny when I went back and I look, Brett. I was thinking about Spike Jones, and for a period of time, he was like the it director, you know, with being John Malkovich and this yeah. movie. Um, and I had seen Being John Malkovich, I think, recently, which before, is before watching this the first time. So. Yeah, which is such a spiritual twin, right? Because it's about an actor who people can go inside his mind, but he is John Malkovich, yes. right? And of course, it was written by Charlie Kaufman. And then this again, he kind of pulls the same. It's almost like. Um, I remember when I saw this film in the theater because I was, I loved being John Malkovich and I just loved, you know, Spike Jones was a part of a kind of um, slew of directors. I really see him uh, 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 as, as a kind of guy who just pick up a camera and do it. You know, he comes from the skateboarding mm -hmm. Um, uh, kind of cruise. Like I remember he came up on, it was like Thrasher or something and doing those like Johnny Knoxville jackass okay. videos. Right. Yeah. That was like Spike Jones's way of coming up. And then he became this guy making these high minded, but funny films. And uh, the thing is, since this film it's in 17 years, Spike Jones has only directed, uh, he did, this is his, all of his films, Being John Malkovich, 99, Adaptation, 2002, Where the Wild Things Are, 2009, hmm. Her, 2013. That's it. Okay. That's it. Interesting. That's it. So I just feel like, um, but it's like it kind of reminded me of Spike Jones and this kind of time at which you had these directors um, like what, uh, who was the other guy um, who also directed a lot of uh, he uh, the French director. Uh, let's see. Eternal mm. Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. Michelle Gondry, um, okay. th where they're just pick up a camera and do it like pure well, filmmakers, too. Yeah, that was Charlie Kaufman too. Okay. That being John Malkovich, Adaptation, then Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind came right in 2004. But uh, it's just funny that he put so much into this movie and the other movies that like in all that time, he's really only made two films since this film in 17 years. Well, that's interesting. And, uh, you know, I, hey, if he makes another one, I'm probably watching it. Yeah, because definitely. It's a very unique style. It's crazy. This film is so interesting. Um, one of the things that I wanted to talk about was 
I was trying to describe the visual style of this film and thinking about coming on this podcast. And besides the kind of, it's like, it's just very practical. A lot of it's handheld. There's not a lot of um, big set pieces. You're pretty much with Nicolas Cage on the screen, almost um, the entire, besides when you get the Meryl Streep, uh, the kind of orchid stuff. Right. You know, and until he enters that, um, it's just a lot of handheld stuff, not a lot of flair, very personal, up close, tight shots. This is just such a personal film, and it made me think a lot about what Spike Jones puts into these films and why he may have only made that many films in that amount of time. Well, I heard that um, Charlie Kaufman, despite you know what you think of him after seeing this movie, he's not too vain of a person or, or arrogant of a person, and that it was like Spike Jones that kind of had to uh, – get with him and, and, and make sure that he was focused on this movie actually being about, you know, Charlie being about himself because those, it, it can be a little awkward if you don't like writing about yourself yes. and make an entire movie that's about yourself. <laughs> so he, so Spike Jones was kind of like that, you know, outside influence that kind of kept him on the path of being very vain. <laughs> kind of, kind of the guy with the, um, with the personality. Yeah like uplift him. It's interesting. Yeah. That kind of, uh, that also the film is so much about Charlie Kaufman and you kind of lose that spike Jones directed the film. It's he allows himself to kind of fade into the background as a director to let Kaufman take over, like let the writer take over the film, which is so rare. Mm hmm. Yeah, I totally agree. Yeah? Yeah, just awesome. All right. Well, you had some cool notes that you wanted to bring up. Why don't we kind of get into them, man? Well, another reason I really like this movie is because I'm a science nerd. And, uh, you know, the concept of adaptation is obviously a a profound, you know, biological, uh, I guess, Darwinian theory or a big piece of it. And when I was thinking about the title adaptation, it has several interpretations as it relates to this movie. First of all, just in a very basic way, it's it's a screenplay adaptation of a book for a movie, or it, it's trying to be. Um, in another way, it's a reference to the adjustment that Charlie, the main character, has to make in the middle of the movie, kind of going as a, against his original strategy of it of wanting it yeah. to be a pure movie about mm-hmm. just what the book is talking about and kind of adapting it uh in a way it, the turn is kind of like attending robert mckee's seminar and calling up his brother to help like yeah. that was his adapting uh move that he had to make and it's and and he makes that move when he goes to the other coast when he leaves la for new york Yes. Right. He's in New York. He's in a different place. He's he's having um, his romantical attachments, <laughs> right, to the writer, and his and his feelings of loss for the girlfriend that he broke up with, or that really broke up with him. Right. Um, right. Are at a high, 
as his is his anxiety. So that you're right, that's great. The adaptation that he makes is so interesting. And it's and the weird thing is, Brett, I always like to pause a movie and see when things happen and I suggest that people who are interested in film and kind of dissecting it and stuff do this as well as television. When something big happens or when a change happens, if you have the mind to, or if you're rewatching, pause the movie and look where it is because you wrote it in your notes. It's in the middle of the movie. It is like literally in the middle of the movie, like no joke. They timed it. So it's exactly in the middle of the movie. He changes. It's right at a two hour movie and it's like yeah. right at the hour mark. I that, think the movie's one fifty one. Yeah, it's like one fifty one and it happens like in fifty four, fifty six or you know, it's like a little it's like almost exactly. Um mm-hmm. of course you can't tell with like credits and stuff, but yeah, it's really amazing. So that's an amazing point. Continue, sir. Well, the third way that <clears throat> excuse me that the uh, movie title can be considered is biologically. If you consider the screenplay itself as an organism, then by definition, it's the alteration in the structure of an organism by which it becomes better fitted to survive its environment. So the screenplay starts out as this think piece about the internal struggle of this writer, but then it actually has to evolve into a Hollywoody violence, sex, drugs, crashes, action movie, or else it probably would have never survived in the corporate movie production environment long enough to be a movie. Yeah. <laughs> so it is kind of like the movie itself is like an organism. Yeah. It's amazing, man. And there's the adaptation. There's the idea. Um, I would say that there's a fourth one too, right? Well, actually, okay. let's talk about that more. The the screenplay as an organism. I want to jump past that. Um, I thought that was great the way you said that. That it it's the internal struggle of the writer, and it has to evolve because the outside forces, right? The mm-hmm. the the um the structure which will enable it to be created, give it give it money and people, right? distribution, a poster, all that kind of stuff. Back- if he turns in the the screenplay that he wanted to write in the first place, it would have probably died right there yeah. in the writer's room or it would yeah. have never progressed. Exactly. So it had to it had to evolve and change um and him with it. And there that's why like all of these things together are really the kind of like this some like the fourth or fifth adaptation one is that the whole thing is the adaptation, right? Like each the all not only uh, the final product itself is the adaptation. Not only did he complete that adaptation, ad- adapted himself. The screenplay adapted. It's about how humanity adapts, right? We as people. Mm-hmm. Have all of us have to adapt? It's also the viewer. You as the viewer have to adapt to this movie. It does. That's true, right? It do, it does force you to adapt. Yes, because you get a lot of people that watch the movie like 
for the first time or one time and they don't like it because they thought it was good, but they thought the ending sucked. And so it's like, <laughs> eh, it's, you know, and then you, what, maybe they watch it a second time and then they're like, Oh wow. That's okay. I get it now. Yeah, because, definitely. So yeah, I agree with that. Right. Because now I was reading, uh, I, I don't know if it was in the Wikipedia here that variety or someone actually reviewed it as if, um, Charlie, uh, not Charlie Kaufman, but Donald was a real person, was not uh, something made up. Um, was well, he actually technically Charlie and Donald got nominated for the uh, Oscar for adapted screenplay. <laughs> so, is this the first time that a fictional person has ever been nominated for an Oscar? <laughs> uh, I I don't know because they're all fictional, really, right? Like they're all not their real names. We could go get into a whole right. other meta conversation there about, uh, and that that's included in the part about kind of film in itself, you know. Um, but and would uh, it be considered an adapted screenplay or an original screenplay? Is <laughs> another debated question. I think. Yeah, exactly. It really is. It, it's it's so much fun when you think of all the ways in which he did this. And it's very clever. And it's not as if it hasn't been done before too, right? There mm-hmm. have been a lot of films that have attempted to kind of uh, break the, the, the fourth wall and allow the person like the you know, the director turns to the camera or something like that. But the way that they do it in this film in which they never do that. And yet they're doing it. The entire film is just absolutely amazing. And it, then it follows mm-hmm. through into the real life thing where I can remember people saying like, does he have a brother? And then people are like, yes, he does have a brother. But that's not who he based the movie on. (laughs) He does not have an identical. Yeah, like they were like really getting into it. Like I say, I think someone like reviewed it like, wow, he wrote this with his brother or something. You know what I mean? Not that they thought it wasn't two Nick Cages or anything, but just the idea that uh, it ran so deep, you know, that and they took it to that extent. Um, it reminds me a little bit of um, the uh, what was it? I'm not here. That though, remember the Joaquin Phoenix thing when he pretended he was going to be a rapper, and he and Casey Affleck. Oh, I'm not sure if I saw did that. this whole mockumentary, and then they ended up, and then years later there were allegations of something happening on the set, and then there were people who said that even that was not true. That they continued mm-hmm. it on for you, like the idea that what really is true in a film in itself. Um, it's just, it's oh man, I'm I'm digging us into the rabbit hole here. Sorry about that. <laughs> I went I, I went down, man. The uh, credits do dedicate the movie to the loving memory of Donald Kaufman. So mm-hmm. I guess maybe Variety bought into the fact that. And his brother died while they were writing this movie. It's so sad. Yeah, it is. It's 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 a sad one, man. When that, I have to say, when he does die in the film, um, and they use the car crash twice, right? Like mm-hmm. not only as if as if coming 
you know, when the when it makes the turn at the halfway point and it makes the turn for all the characters, right? Not just um it's not just uh Charlie, Charlie. that turns, but all of a sudden Susan is acting totally different, right? Right. Mm-hmm. And she's like even in the even in the interview that she does with Donald um is which which is super funny <laughs> in itself uh right. but like the whole thing starts becoming intensely crazy and silly uh and I kind of lost my train of thought there what I was talking about this movie has got me confused Brett <laughs> That's okay. What was I talking about? I'm not sure where you're going with that. I'm sure you had a good point. Oh um, man. Well, I'll get to it. I'll, I'll I'll find my way back to a point at some at some point, man. Um, I, I'm I think what I was trying to say is that um, the the uh, car crashes where yeah. the story of how um uh, Chris Cooper's like killed his what is it his mother and his aunt and his wife his not his wife. He killed his mother. Right, his I'm not wife sure survived. Anyone but else then actually div- died, but yeah. divorced. Oh, his wife went into a coma. That's yeah. right, but she survived. And that they use this. It's almost the same exact car crash. Like they're just driving along, mm-hmm. same angle and everything, and they go to it twice. Like the once wasn't good enough. Yeah, you have to have more action in the movie. All right, I don't know what that was about, but all right, let's continue. <laughs> <laughs> Well, so I guess that's, I think that's another reason why I liked the movie the first time I saw it is that like in the first five minutes of the movie, they showed this sequence that's about 45 seconds long that starts with the beginning of earth and it shows, you know, molten lava and dinosaurs and primates. And then it shows Charlie being born. And I'm like, what the hell was that? Okay. I'm, I'm invested in this movie now. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> like five minutes in, like interesting. I love so, that too, and the way they did it too, where they he they kind of mix like animation and live stuff, and like yeah, the cheesy old shot of like the fox decaying, and you know <laughs> right. that you've seen before. Like it was stock footage. It was like every kind of pulling it all out, right? Um, Robert McKee plays a critical role in this movie. I feel like the more I thought about it, um, cause he's, he's obviously a real person and he does have these like 10 commandments of screenwriting or whatever. So, but it's interesting how the movie chose to utilize some of his principles in order to quote, save the movie, but other principles he has, they just blatantly ignored. For example, you cannot have a protagonist without desire. Okay. He, you know, gain desire, uh, having no conflict will bore your audience to tears. Okay. Add more conflict, you know, wow them in the end and you got to hit. Okay. You got to stick <laughs> the, the ending, you know? Okay. So that helped the movie, but on the other hand, never use voiceover narration. Like the, the entire movie, there's voiceover narration. And then don't dare put in a deus ex machina, which he is kind of the deus ex machina. Yeah. So, I mean, there's the alligator at the end, but 
which would be more literally, I guess, the deus ex machina. But he himself, like in his seminar, could be considered that as well. Yeah, that was um, – It. why do you think that is? I, I think it's like there's a, a – I, I think that is kind of part of the adaptation, right? That you use some of what is given to you, but you also you you have to use your own stuff, right? You know yeah, that makes sense. Like I was trying to think about that too. Why he he this character pops up and he is immediately following along and doing what you know. For, first, he hates him because he's kind of like the antithesis antithesis whatever of, i can't say anything today of what he wants to achieve with this particular screenplay right and this particular story and this particular way of writing that's like anti-hollywood you know right and mckee is kind of like the super hollywood guy um like he un- he mixes he mixes that element that we were talking about earlier the corporate element the machine that creates it uh he like charlie is it. so opposed in the beginning yeah. charlie is so opposed to the concept he's like don't use the word industry and you know this is this is not one of your model airplanes that you can just assemble you know writing is a, a journey deep <laughs> yes. inside you you know deep within your heart and yada yada so it's that it's that i guess that conflict of you know originality versus doing what you know works and and I guess that's kind of also like, um, yeah, doing what you know works, but then also part of evolution and adapting is trying things and maybe they only work for that instance or they're not something that is gonna, is you're going to do again yeah. or that you even like agree with, you know? Sure. Yeah, that makes sense. You, you just kind of try to do something. Yeah, McKee is awesome in this man, and um, Brian. Co- oh, go ahead. yeah, that's another another acting performance. Although he he's not on on screen a whole lot, but Brian Cox's portrayal of uh, McKee is excellent. And I was reading that they had there was like so many other people that were up for that role, and when you think of him, he just have you watched uh, Succession on HBO? I've seen like an episode and a half uh, or so. Yeah, he's so, fantastic in that. Yeah, he is. That is that you could just imagine. I can't really imagine anyone else. All the casting in this is fantastic, and like you said, one of the funniest parts of it is when he when you literally hear him say, "You cannot have a protagonist without desire," <laughs> and then it's it's. It's he immediate that's immediately when then the next thing is him in voiceover like stating his desires. <laughs> right? right. Like and what then he, he yells to do. Can, don't dare use voiceover narration. That's lazy writing. And it's so right that these things are not really true. And I mean, I've talked about it so many times, and I've talked about it with Heath. Like these kind of rules that people have. You really can't be handcuffed by them and you have to just kind of, it's always the great ones that pull everything out. And that's kind of, that's the funny thing about this script is it really does everything you're not supposed to do and is successful, 
But one of the problems, and I wanted to bring this up to you uh, when I was thinking about this movie and kind of what came after. Okay. And maybe even why Spike Jones didn't make a movie for so long after this. Take a little break here to tell you about a special 20th anniversary sale at cufflinks.com. Use code cufflinks20 from July 8th to the 22nd to get 20% off your order site-wide, baby. Cufflinks20. Come celebrate with us and look good, too, while you do it. We're having a party. It's a virtual one. It's at cufflinks.com slash DVR. Go there today. Use code cufflinks20 from July 8th to the 22nd to celebrate their 20th anniversary. Happy anniversary, cufflinks.com, from me to you. Now back to the show. What I was thinking about was this film, um, it kind of takes all of these elements of a, it's uh, it's like a, it's kind of like a post-cultural analysis. It. Uh, it, it takes not only the roles, the actor, here's Nicolas Cage playing against type. You have the most famous actress like ever of our generation, the last two, three generations, Meryl Streep, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you have the, the screenwriter putting himself into it. This kind of hot shot-ish type director, Spike Jones who is famous for being like real and everything. So what I'm basically trying to say is this is such an amazing film. And in a sense, it kind of predicted a pop culture or a cultural like wasteland to come is, is adaptation. Like was adaptation in a, I started to think of this last night. Maybe I was up too late. I almost like got angry at the movie for a second (laughs) And kind of like started blaming it for just like, because it is, it's genius in so many ways. And I was so like, when you pick this film and that now that we're talking about it, I find myself even getting lost in thinking about how deep it is, but then how also it's, it's very sarcastic, right? Um, The end is not satisfying to me. No, it's not. It's it's very Hollywood. It, it's bullshit, really, right. and it it just ends. And I was I remember being annoyed originally, but but loving that I was annoyed. <laughs> right, right, okay. Appreciating that I was annoyed, but when I watched it last night, and I was like at the end and watching it again. And I'm like, and I probably hadn't seen the film and like, maybe because I, this is one that I will watch every so often, you know, it's such a great film. So mm-hmm. probably maybe five, six years, like since my kid was born, I hadn't seen it. And it kind of annoyed me um, be, because it's like kind of what pop culture has become in a sense where everyone is aware, Right. Where like everyone's an mm. influencer or, or, or like the film is aware that it's popular. It's, it's, it, you know, it's, um, it's doing things for the audience, right? It's a, it's a, for the fans because we stan it. You know what I'm trying to say, right. Brett? What do you yeah. think about that, man? Do I have a point there or what? Yeah, I think you have a point there. Um, I, 
I mean, at the time that, that I saw it, it was basically like before the social media craze. Yep. And, uh, but I just think it's, it's just very funny and very well done that I try to keep it at that. Like I try not to read too, <laughs> too much into it. It's kind of like the, you know, the joke about the de- deconstructionists or, or murders of literature. Um, yeah. I th- I just think it's meant to be like a comedy above all else, but I, I see your point. It, I can see myself thinking about it too much and kind of getting annoyed with it. And that, yeah, man, that's, I don't know. That's, wh- that's what's interesting to watch this later. And it doesn't take away um, from a lot of the humor in it. And it doesn't take away from my enjoyment of watching it. But when it was over, I was just kind of like, okay, I remember Spike Jones. Yeah. Maybe a little prickish, (laughs) you know, (laughs) that's what I, I don't know. I'm not, it's not, I mean, the film wise, I don't know the guy personally, but I just mean it was kind of a little bit. Yeah, I, I, th- I think self-aware. that's accurate. Like a little too self aware. Um, but the acting in the film and the de- and the dedication of the actors and the way that it's such so purely told uh, makes that in the end makes me actually a little bit more sad because it's almost just like a resignation, you know? Yeah, I, a, I can, I can definitely see your point. Yeah. Not a lot of film. Like, do you think that this film would get made today? Uh, I'm not sure if it could. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I don't even I'm know if sure. Netflix would make it. <laughs> I'm not sure, Maybe if you, but you're, yeah, you're right. The, the acting is so good. Yeah, uh, across the board. Let's talk a little bit about that, though. Let's talk a little bit about uh, Nick Cage. I mean, I'm a huge Nick Cage. Are you a huge Nick Cage fan, or what? What were your feeling on on his performance here and overall? Well, I, I'm not really a huge Nick Cage fan or anti Nick Cage, but I know that like my wife is anti Nick Cage, and I know there's <laughs> a lot of people out there that. They don't watch movies if Nick Cage is in them. Really? Like you get this. Yeah, you get this with like Adam Sandler or uh, mm. just some, I guess some actors like rub people the wrong way. And yeah. so they just don't even give a movie a shot. And so my counter to, to the anti-Nick Cage people out there is this movie specifically. Because I think th- this is not not that I've seen every movie that he's done, but this is probably the best performance that I've seen him do. And the way he can play two twin brothers that are like complete opposite personalities. Uh, it was just, it was well done. Yeah. He was great. He was really great. And, and the thing is, is that it's, it does the, the differences between the brothers. It's not like um, as soon as, they're together, you automatically can kind of tell, oh, he's the really outgoing one. He's terrible. It kind of sneaks in on you because when you first meet Donald, he is a loser, right? He's like, (laughs) he just walks into the room and he's there. Yeah. Right. 
And he said, yeah, I'll leave. And he, and they lay out the plot. I'm leaving kind of soon. I know like everything you need to know is right there. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then as he gets better at writing and his screenplay gets sold and then he decides to bring him in on the screenplay to help him, you know, the big screenwriter brother, their differences become more and more apparent and it gets upwritten as the whole film gets like yeah. upwritten, right? Yeah, that was that was pretty much all Donald there for the last, you know, 45 yeah. minutes of the movie. It's amazing. And and the fact that he was able to really, when I think about it, I do think about him as two separate people. And that was 2002. So there was a couple times when you can kind of tell, you know, that it's like a, like a stunt double. Mm-hmm. What did you think? Did you, were you, was there ever a point at which you were like, because can't you remember back in the day when they first did stuff like this? You'd be like, wow, how did they get two people? You know what I mean? <laughs> it's like Jurassic Park, dude. Um, you know, like it's some great effect or something. But they did it even – they did a lot of, I think, in-camera stuff here. Yeah, I couldn't – I mean, I couldn't really tell uh, stunt doubles or anything. I think they pulled it off pretty well. Yeah, I think they did. they did it pretty good too. Um, and I'm almost sure I like, got there was a, like a short doc that I didn't get a chance to watch, uh, that I remember watching on this. One of the famous things from it, I remember is all that, all the, when they're driving around, um, after they get kidnapped, um, mm-hmm. the, the sound guy, or was it Spike Jones did sound and he they were in the trunk of the car because they only had the rig to attach the camera like to the front of the car. They weren't on like a flatbed or anything like that. So huh. the kind of shooting that they did was really like guerrilla style for this movie, even huh. though it involves like Meryl Streep, Nick Cage, you know what I mean? Like yeah. it was such a big to do it was actually shot really like gorilla style because that's pretty much i think the only way spike jones knows how to make a movie and it's that's how he's comfortable doing it right that's interesting you know like you think other these days i mean that's how you can tell like kind of you know like they what are they gonna like shoot it on a green screen there's some of the car stuff is on a green screen i think there's two car th- see very quickly but most of it there really is just a person in the back seat some a sound guy in the trunk and they were just shooting the movie interesting i loved it yeah, yeah i love nick cage man i really do i have always loved him i think he's a great well, he's actor a what's that Sorry, he's a coppola yeah he's a coppola and of course he was at the time, I guess, Spike Jones' cousin-in-law, because Spike Jones was married to Sofia Coppola. Oh, really? Yeah, okay. when they were making this movie, I'm pretty sure that they were. This was, yeah, this was the whole, <clears throat> yeah, man, this was the whole thing. When then later, she made later, you know, the movie uh, with um, uh, what's uh, man, my mind is gone today. Uh, Bill Murray and Scarlett Johansson. Oh, the uh, you're talking about it with John, I think. Uh, uh, Lost in Translation. Lost in Translation. Yeah. That movie is supposedly about her relationship with Spike Jones. Uh, 
Okay. She's the wow. Scarlett Johansson character, uh, even though obviously at that point in time, she was a little bit more than in that movie. I think Scarlett Johansson is kind of just like more like a, a normal person and, and the, her husband is some star photographer guy, you know, I doesn't spike Jones actually play him in that movie. I don't, I don't ever, I don't remember who plays him, but I supposedly that was about their kind of disintegration of their marriage that she was like painfully shy and just kind of want to, hang out with people, but he always wanted to be out and about. And, uh, ah, interesting. Yeah. yeah. I had no idea. So, um, yeah, man, that, that, that's, that's the, uh, <laughs> that's the so, gossip at the time. <laughs> so Nicholas <laughs> Cage got the, got the inside. Uh, yeah. Track so he got the inside. Yeah. So they were all, it's all, they're all, yeah. She was making movies. I remember her brother, Roman Coppola was making movies. He made like CQ, at the time, which I think Charlie Kaufman may have had something to do with. Hmm. I don't know if he wrote that movie too. Um, but yeah, they all, that's a very Jason Schwartzman. That's a, those are some, that's a big talented group of people. Uh, but Spike Jones is no longer part of that family because they are divorced, man. But he did get Nicolas Cage in this movie. Yeah, dude, I love <laughs> Nicolas Cage. You know, I loved him in Mandy. I think he's a weirdo. I have, you know, I don't say know anything about him in real life. Maybe he's not a weirdo. Maybe buy, maybe he doesn't buy Tyrannosaurus Rex heads. I don't know what to believe. Who knows, right? Uh, who knows? Yeah, I don't know. I know he's done. He's done a lot of like action movies that that I wouldn't necessarily go out <laughs> no, and see just because they're I, not my type of movie. But I've seen him do. I mean, yeah. like you said, Mandy, mm. uh, and this one. I mean, you can tell he has he has the chops. Oh my god. Hey, even when he, even I watched, uh, uh, the, uh, September 11th movie, World Trade Center, the Oliver Stone movie. He was great in that. And in some of these cheesy movies that he does, these cheesy action movies are not terrible because he is having so much fun doing them. So if, you know, you have them on or something, they're not that bad. I'm, I don't know, man. I got to say, I'm a Nick Cage fan, and I think he was fantastic in this. Meryl Streep is amazing. She always is. She is like the Michael Jordan of uh, movies. Like, <laughs> you, could, you could give Michael Jordan the MVP every year if you really yeah. wanted to. Well, yep. you can give her the an Oscar every year if you really wanted to. You, you I can't. mean, she's just, she always is at the top. I don't, I don't know what to say. Uh, we're, you know, we're covering big little lies and she does that same little laugh, <laughs> well, I don't, you know, and this, even though she does certain things that are the same, it seems like she's doing them for the first time with that character. And mm-hmm. it's just that I, I don't, there's no, there's like no superlatives left to describe or even speak about Meryl Streep because she's just amazing. She's immediately this character. And when she makes the turn and that's kind of, it starts in the interview with Donald, right? Um, Mm -hmm. That's when we first see her post. I, I guess, I don't know what you would call it. Like, I guess post the, 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 the script being McKeed. I, I would, would say the it. point where um, Charlie 
goes to the McKee seminar and then the very well, and then he talks to him at the bar for a few minutes. And Uh then the very next scene is him calling Donald to invite him up to New York to help him that I guess that scene where Donald comes in and like reads over his unfinished screenplay is probably (laughs) the, the point where, you know, he injects his ideas. But there's a little bit before, I think that there's a hint that the, the thing, the undercurrent, of the film, which leads to kind of the unsatisfying ending is Charlie's love life. Right. And he Mm -hmm. kind of falls in love with Susan a bit before that. Right. And that's the reason why, maybe not in love, but in lust or whatever. Right. He becomes like fascinated with her. And Mm -hmm. then that's why, he uh that's well that's why he goes to new york in the first place i think exactly he he realizes he's he's basically stuck and he needs to meet her to get out of it because he gave up on when he could have met her right when he just happens to walk into her because that's the way the script's written right like (laughs) that's what's so great about this movie like every time something has to happen it just happens and then (laughs) but when that happens in a movie the things McKee says, I mean, there's so much I'm not talking about, about how this is really such a movie about filmmaking, um, but that's like kind of inherent in it. But uh, yeah. what I want to say is there's a little bit of before that, right, which is that he decides to go to New York, which I think is an important thing that mm-hmm. is kind that like the the action comes from the character, right? And that's what McKee says too. That's true. He has to like, he has that desire. The desire must come from, you know, internally from the character. Exactly. And that's what it is. That's his desire. And then he does everything else from that. So in actuality, that's really when the script becomes like McKeed and starts being like upwritten, I would call it. And it's, becomes something different and that's basically when he can't finish it right right like he's having the meeting like when are you gonna finish it can't finish you know and he has and remember he's like keeps on feverishly yelling into the mic into his recorder right. and then listening back to it and like i've had so many nights like i mean we all have for whatever reason you know it doesn't have to be a screenplay where like you think you've figured something out Right. Yeah. And the way, just the way they shoot that is like, he's all excited and and talking into the recorder and then it immediately flashes to him like the next day, listening back to it. And like this look on his face, like what the hell was I thinking? That's what I mean. And it's really, it's interesting that the last film uh, was um, uh, Rushmore, Wes Anderson, who pulls out every conceivable flashy or extravagant uh, film technique and makes it mm-hmm. beautiful and seamless and all like all the all the corners are tucked perfectly. And then Spike Jones, the way you describe that, he just cuts. Mm-hmm. Right? Like he's so simple. He really is just like a dude with a camera. And um, that's why it's just so great, man, because you think today or a lot of other directors wouldn't do something that simple. 
that he's like going feverish, and then he just cuts to him. <laughs> his face is just like. You know he's just like, what the hell was I talking about? And then his brother walks in and he's like trying to turn it off. <laughs> you know, like I gotta, right? I, I oh my right. god, this is embarrassing. You know, um, yeah, man, wow. And that's that's Nick Cage again. It's just I yes. think that's a great acting job there. He's fantastic. I'm so glad that I'm just I'm waiting. Everybody has a renaissance. I want the Cageissance. There was another <laughs> crazy movie that he came out with recently that. uh I would like to check out, but, um, Meryl Streep, uh, let's talk a little bit about, uh, Chris Cooper and Chris Cooper of all these great actors. He's the one that actually won the Oscar yep. for uh, best supporting actor. He's yeah, awesome. he was, he was, he was great. Um, he's just, <laughs> I don't know anything about John LaRoche other than what I've seen in this movie, but he seems like quite a character. he, he definitely brought him to life for sure. Yeah. Um, I don't know. He, he's missing his front teeth. <laughs> not sure how you, how that works, how an actor can remove his front teeth for a role, but he manages to do it. Um, I don't know. I got to look. Just, did he, did he, did they wear just a little green on the teeth and just get it? But he really like talked like that too. Yeah, he did. Yeah. Maybe he's he missing his teeth. I don't think he got his teeth taken out. Probably not. Hey, is it worth an Oscar? Would you take out your front teeth for an Oscar? Maybe. No front teeth were harmed in the filming of this I movie. Oh man, you know some of these actors are crazy. You see, uh, uh, what's his name, Christian Bale, like gaining and losing hundreds of pounds. Right. You know? What's a few teeth? <laughs> But yeah, he's he's so great, you know, riding around in the van and uh, the, uh, I mean, just he's obsessed yeah. with several things. I mean, he's obsessed, and then the the whole famous fuck fish line is like his whole life is about tropical fish, and then one day, fuck fish, I'm never setting a toe in the ocean again. <laughs> but, and but why? You, you know what the thing is is this is the thing I notice about the film. Every character changes except him. Yeah, he doesn't really change. He doesn't That's change. A good point. He Even, is the exact he, same character from the beginning to the end. And every action that he takes is entirely consistent with his character. There's no growth, really. It's He's just the same guy. In a sense, he is kind of the aspiration of what Charlie Kaufman wanted to achieve in the film, you know, because in a mm. sense, I felt like that was the male stand in, right? Like he got the girl, yes. Charlie didn't, he, he was obsessed when he was obsessed, he was Im immediately successful all he had to do was desire and be into something, and he was a success at it. He didn't even have to think about it. That's a good point. He had ultimate confidence. He was this. He said three or four times, "I'm the smartest person I know." Yeah, that's a right? very good point. And yet, even when people were making fun of him, like when Meryl Streep is making fun of him with her friends, and then she goes into the bathroom and basically is like kind of crying because she realizes that. Actually, she hates all of them and just wants him. <laughs> right. right. She's jealous of him. Yeah. Like they all yeah. should be. 
because right. of his life, but he doesn't change. And I think that is such a great character. And uh, yeah, Chris Cooper just inhabits him and also just completely kind of uh, bonkers and really the character remains consistent because he's entirely inconsistent and could do anything at any time. You just believe it because he had kind of professed that the first time you meet him. Yep. Yep. When I like something, I like it when I don't, I'm done. Right. And then the, the scene I remember most of him is I think probably the end where the, where we're in the middle of the climactic sequence in the swamp and he's, basically realizes that he has to shoot Charlie. Right. And he doesn't want to do it. So he's like yeah. breaking down, crying, saying, Hey, I'm sorry, man, I don't want to do this. And it's just, I don't know. I just thought it was, it's just great acting. And that was know. great too, because you, you think about it, that was really interesting, Brett, because there could be a choice there that he really, because uh, she turned heel completely. Right. Yes. It was her idea to kill him. She chased him down. Right. She's right. the one who he didn't even shoot Donald on purpose. Yeah, that's true. Right. Yeah, so, that, that was an opportunity for him to be like you know the Hollywood antagonist or whatever, and he wasn't. No, it was her yelling at him, and then he accidentally shoots him, and then he's crying at the end, doesn't want to, and then he gets taken out by by the alligator, which was very funny, <laughs> but, um, it just, that was consistent too. Right. Because he always had a heart and like, he yes. wasn't into this. She, he didn't want to do this. He kept on telling her no. And it was like, he was going against himself and he was outwardly showing that it was really man. Yeah. So much of this I mean, you could do, I, I, I mean, I should, we should do a whole nother pod and have solo because we could talk about just, it is such a metaphor for filmmaking. Uh, the whole yeah. adaptation, when you talked about screenplay, it's not just the screenplay, it's the filmmaking too. Like that thing, at the doing the sound in the trunk always stuck with me because, um, uh, who was it? There was a director who just recently on YouTube did a dissection of a couple of scenes from a film um, that, that was, that he did. And I think the film might be out. In th- oh, it was, it was, um, it was Shazam. Uh, he did a YouTube video and he dissected it and he said, and these were two scenes that people kind of critics kind of complained about and that he too felt didn't really work. And he goes over them. I want to watch it. Uh, I just read about it. And he says like, you know what? I'll tell you the truth on this day. We only had this location for like five hours. And uh. you know what I mean? Like he kind of gets into describing to the limitations of making the actual film. Um, and since this film and this adaptation literally starts out on the set of being John Malkovich. Yes. Right. With uh-huh. also a hilarious cameo by John Malkovich <laughs> in which right. he entirely, in which he's the, that's what's so funny about the director giving over this whole film to the screenwriter that it starts out with John Malkovich basically directing the movie. 
<laughs> right. Let me tell you something. That doesn't ha- that would not f- really f- go over well on a set if like <laughs> Spike Jones is directing and then and then the actor decides to give a like, you know, a three minute soliloquy about how you should all behave while because it's hot and like you know, <laughs> you so know you're saying that's, that's like, realistic. Yeah, that's not realistic. <laughs> it's not realistic. And that was you know, it, but that played into it too, right? Like mm-hmm. it starts on a movie. Um I don't know, man. But I just think that these things, like them hiding the trunk to do the sound, um, just kind of running and gunning it and and you can see some of the shots on streets and stuff are like stolen shots meaning like they didn't close down the street and all that you know like even the locations in which they were shooting it um so much of it is interiors it's very controlled you know maybe the Mm -hmm. big maybe the most uh complex scene that they had to shoot with the most amount of people was the party that charlie's at briefly yeah Right? Like everything else is like two people in a room. That's true. You know? So that just plays into while I'm watching it, um, just thinking about how like that kind of adaptation uh, as the viewer, you see a movie with Meryl Streep and Nick Cage and it's released in theaters. And you think that like, if you saw a behind the scenes thing, it costs millions of dollars. You know what I mean? Like it's green screen, but no, it's just like five guys. <laughs> really? Right. And, and Lance Accord, who was the cinematographer for this, who is one of my favorites. This guy's amazing and did so much music video stuff. Um, it, it is just absolutely fantastic. He, he is, uh, is always like inspiring as far as the, just doing it with like a small crew. And yeah. um, it just has a lot to do. So that's my kind of uh, digression into how this is kind of like a movie about making movies. What a that was great. great. Film. Thank you. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. <laughs> I keep clearing my throat right into the microphone. You know what Spike Jones's real name is? Adam Spiegel. Really? Yeah. That's his that's real weird. name. Adam Spiegel. Huh. Yep. I've always felt the kinship with Spike Jones because I'm Axel Foley. <laughs> How's that? Well, Spike Jones was an old, um, was a, like a 19, I think it was like a twenties, like, or even before like silent film actor, like comedian, like a early, like Charlie Chaplin. Hmm. Okay. I believe that's who Spike Jones was, the original Spike Jones. It's not spelled Spike. It's spelled Spike Jones, though, not with a Z. It's spelled yeah. differently. Yeah, Spike Jones. Lindley Armstrong Jones, 1911, died 1965. Oh, a satirical musician and band leader. Now, I wonder if he was related to Spike Jones. Now I'm going to learn something live on the podcast. I don't think so. Doesn't look like it. Doesn't look like Spike Jones was related to Spike Jones, but I've always thought about that. It's just because a, a lot of people don't realize that Axel Foley's from Beverly Hills Cop. Right, right. So it's just kind of like a weird like name from another person. Right on. All right, Brett. Well, what are we going to talk about next? <laughs> um, go, Let's adapt. I was going to go back to. 
when you said uh, that uh, John LaRoche's character um, is basically kind of like what Charlie wanted to be. Yeah. That reminded me of the screenplay within this movie called The Three, which is the one, the movie that Donald was writing. Oh, yes. Yes. It's about basically a serial killer, a hostage, and a cop all being the same person. Yeah. So, in a sense, you could say, well, Charlie, uh, Susan, and John LaRoche are kind of all the same person. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's a great point, Brett. You're, oh, yeah. And isn't it amazing how they talk, they consistently talk about the movie and their, the movie that we're watching? Yes. You know what I mean? Like everything he says, you need a chase, and then there's a chase. Right. Right. You need, you know, got to have drugs involved. And then all of a sudden they're, they're freaking international drug dealers of this orchid sniffing powder. You know what I mean? Right. Like everything be- happens, but, um, yeah, you're absolutely right when he says that. Uh, and, and doesn't he say something like, that's the, oh, that's the stupidest thing ever that they're all, they're the same person. And yeah. Then he's talking he also to says it's impossible to write. Yeah. Oh, and the point where he says to him, but what's the, um, oh, I remember it's one specific line when he says, how can the, how can the person, how can your serial killer be going after the person when they're also. Yeah. He says, I got it written down here. Actually, he says, how can you have a person in a basement and working at a police station at the same time? And Donald says, trick photography. (laughs) (laughs) No, that's not what I'm asking. I mean, in the reality of this movie, when there's only one character, right? How can you? And he just trails off because he's unable to describe it. Yeah, which is what the movie does. Right. Right. And not not only with with like multiple characters is what, of course, also what the Susan character is doing too, right? Like the, mm-hmm. the double lives she's leading. It's cr- crazily well-written. And again, marvel that he pulled it off because there is a world in which this movie doesn't work. Totally. Yeah. I, maybe I think that's why I'm so impressed. Yeah. Is it just, it works so well. That That's the thing, man. You got to have, like, it's a fine line. And this movie works well. And as I'm talking, I com- I, I, I'm just utterly convinced that this movie is responsible for the decline of Western civilization. <laughs> I'm now starting to believe it, Brett. Well, I think that's what Spike Jones is going for. You know? But- I mean, he did follow it up for, with Where the Wild Things Are. And then Her, too. Was good. Yeah, her was but, a lot that that had a lot that cinematography in her and actually where the wild things are took a definite step up. Well, and then but her could also be kind of an apocalyptic uh premonition maybe. Yeah. We're all going to fall in love with computers one day. I know I already have. You and I both love computers. We're we're <laughs> we're sci-fi guys. That's very true. That's why I was surprised. You're actually your alternate movie was going to be Primer, right? That's the other one I was thinking about doing, right? Yeah. Oh man, we might have to do Primer. I've been watching Dark, and that is amazing. Have you wait? You watch Dark, right? 
Yeah, I was, you were one I was of the trying people. To, yeah. I was trying to get you on the dark wagon yes. last year, actually. Yes, you were. So, uh, yeah, I, I saw your post recently uh, talking about primer and dark uh, on, on your Facebook page. So that kind of reminded me of, man, primer, that would have been another good movie to do too. Yeah, definitely. But I have to thank you for telling me about dark Brett. And I listened to you way back then I did. I watched, it took me literally watching the first episode three times before it finally stuck. That's how dedicated I was towards a TV <laughs> show that involved time travel. Cause that's my obsession in life, but it worked and I love dark. Oh my God. What a fantastic. Uh, watch the dubbed version each time because I actually I tried the dubbed version first and I couldn't do it so I switched to the subtitles and I I was I was rolling after that. Um, I couldn't. This is I tried the subtitles first, couldn't do it. Then I tried the dubbed, uh, couldn't do it. Then I then I finally worked with the dubbed because okay I'm too. I'm bad with subtitles because I'm so into cinematography and editing and stuff that I really, I know it's terrible to take away from an actor's performance, but I just folding laundry. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I got to be doing (laughs) something else, building a Gundam, doing something. So So I could, uh, so I went with the dubbed and I'm going to rewatch it though. I think, um, with the, uh, with the subtitles and, awesome. um, I might jump on, um, Bubba and tiny's podcast from the double P network. Listen to their dark Wyndham caves. Um, yes, they're so good, man. They helped me understand that show so much. Uh, I might jump on and cover one of season two shows with them. And if I do, I'm going to try to watch it. I'll rewatch it, um, with the actual, dialogue subtitled this time but um all right dark we got we we digressed let's talk (laughs) a little bit more about i think we've talked so much about uh do you want to just kind of go over some of the memorable stuff or some of the funny parts that you remember and uh we'll go from there brother sure um just the very beginning of the movie uh when he's meeting with the uh what position is that woman play? The statuesque uh, kind of producer, producer, I yeah. guess. Tilda Swinton. Oh yeah, she's great. Um, and he's just, you know, upon rewatch, it's even funnier because he's. Let me find it here. Oh, where is it? Yeah, he's a. He starts. Okay, the the beginning is hilarious upon rewatch when you realize that all the things that Charlie doesn't want the movie to be about is exactly the list of things that the movie becomes. I want the movie to exist without it being artificially plot driven. I don't want to turn the orchids into poppies. I don't (laughs) want to cram sex or guns or car chases. I don't want characters learning profound life lessons or growing or overcoming obstacles to succeed in the end. So it's just, it's just very funny. And I love the co- the conversation that changes his mind when he says, um, when McKee says uh, that, well, he stands up and he says to him that he doesn't want all this, right? That he's trying to create a screenplay that doesn't have any of these things. 
Right. And then he gets mad at him and he's like, what do you think? These things don't happen in real life. Like, look (laughs) at how insane real life is, man. Uh You know, like every second somebody's living, dying or making a choice or, or that could lead to a life or death or life altering decision. You know, you, why, who even wants to see your damn movie if it doesn't have that in it, you know? Right. Yeah, that McKee scene was great when he just calls him out. And then he says to him, sir, I'd like to talk to you about what you said, not just about film, but it profoundly changed my my view of life. (laughs) And he's like, I could go for a drink. I could really use a drink. And then you could tell that like that really. And the film, it's great because that is the film does start to change from there because he's got to make that decision it works so perfectly because it's so obvious and it's, it doesn't need to be super deep that he needs to make that choice in real life, Mm -hmm. you know, like to do something to live because that's really the problem that he's having. Right. Exactly. Like he, he's just not living life. He's turning away from everything. He's scared of everything. He can't commit. He can't decide. He doesn't care. He doesn't have any desire really, right? He's just floating along. And right. uh this conversation like turns him and the movie around. Yeah, that's fantastic, man. And then at the very end he does overcome and he kisses the girl, finally. But it's so uh, <laughs> he does <laughs> It's so what? Fake and contrived. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's so fake and contrived. It's terrible. It's terrible. I kind of want that movie that he was describing. <laughs> and guess what? They've made a lot of those movies since, right? Yeah. Like, I think like, it's funny that this was, uh, if I remember correctly, this was like a big um, kind of Sundance hit, even though it was after the whole, I think it was a little later. Sundance had become way more corporate at this point and stuff, but I think it was in a sense, um, you know, and, and, and that those all, that's like, for 10 or 12 years, that's all Sundance movies were. <laughs> right. Right. Just like sad movies with no resolution. Yeah, and this was, well, this was pre Netflix too, where you could, you can make almost any movie you want and throw it on Netflix. Yeah. True. True that. Don't I know it, baby. They're all there to be covered by daily DVR. <laughs> <laughs> All right, man. This was great, dude. Um, is there anything else you want to mention? We really talked a lot about it. It was uh, You had some memorable quotes. Adaptation is a profound process. It means you figure out how to thrive in the world. It's easier for plants. They have no memory. For a person, adapting is almost shameful, like running away. That is a, that's a great part, too, that this film... I try to think about that film like... The thing that this film doesn't get into, right, is really why Charlie is like that. Yeah. You know, they he talks a little bit about his childhood and his brother, but while he's saying it, you almost know that he doesn't really have – you kind of know he doesn't have a brother. <laughs> you know what I mean? I mean, obviously, in the rewatch, you know, it's not real. But within the confines of the film. So it's interesting that they're able to get such depth. Um, but I didn't find that like the shame or the shamefulness 
of like uh, what he was running away from. It was really more about who he was rather than kind of experiences that he had. Yeah, that's true because he had just come off writing a relatively successful yeah. uh, movie and being John Malkovich. Yeah. He was, so people already knew how talented he was. That's interesting, isn't it? Because I think that's why some have said that there's a shallowness to this film, mm-hmm. which um, had been accused, which Malkovich and I think Spike Jones in general had kind of been accused of. And I think her kind of, why are the wild things are, those films are very different from these two films. Um, and, and, and when I was thinking about it and I saw your notes when you had this, it made me think about that because the line is great especially the part about plants, right? Mm -hmm. Like you can conceive of that as a person. Like a lot of times it's hard to change or do something different because it changes your perception of yourself. Yes. Right. And and also the way other people see you, that's where kind of a shame can derive. Ooh, I used to not like that. Now I do, you know? Um, Mm -hmm. But I don't know how how deep that this film really gets into that. But then I find that I'm okay with that. Like the way you were mentioning how it's just, it's funny, it has these elements, but it's also really a funny, watchable film. That scene where Donald is asking Charlie if he has a good way to murder somebody. And Charlie says, the killer is a literature professor. He cuts off little chunks of his victims until they die. He calls himself the deconstructionist. <laughs> and Donald obviously doesn't get it, but... You know, I just, uh, that might be a hint to just, uh, kind of keep it surface level. If you're, if you're trying to analyze this movie. Yeah. That isn't that interesting that it's such a deep film and it's like, it has that push and pull because I feel like from Charlie Kaufman, it's, it's almost like one of the lessons of the film and you, you hit on it earlier about the relationship between the director, uh, Spike Jones, and the writer, Charlie Kaufman, about like that kind of that balance where maybe the reason he was just a naturally internal person. And he was, it was almost the kind of like the lesson of the film is a little bit like, don't think too much, do. Right. You know, like just get out there and do something and try and show up and things are going to happen. And that's where the car chase happens. And uh, and unfortunately, other things are going to happen. Like your brother's going to get thrown out a window and crack his neck and die in front of you or get shot in the arm that, you know, that you write with. You know what I mean? I thought about that too. Um, yeah. It's just like, that's kind of like, in essence, we've spent the last hour really diving into the film. Maybe we should have just been joking about, you know, how Nick's Nicholas Cage's hair looked really bad. <laughs> Donald's hair was better than it. I noticed that though. Did you notice that? I read an interview that said that they had the exact same hair. See, I didn't, that's interesting. Cause I kind of thought, I thought that, that Donald's hair just looked better, but maybe it was because his personality. It could have been that, or it could have been uh, his posture was better. So you couldn't actually see the top of his head. 
you know what? I think you are absolutely right, Brett, because he was always, Charlie was always bending down, right? Mm. Like he was always putting his head down. That shows great acting on the part of Nicolas Cage. Something simple like that, right? Uh huh. Like one keeps his head up and the other keeps his head down. That's awesome, man. All right. What a great movie. This has been fun, dude. Chatting about adaptation. Anything else you want to talk about? It's been a lot of fun. Uh, and I did want to add one more quote, which is actually a post in credits quote. So some people may not even know that this is in there. But after the credits are finished rolling, there's a quote from the movie or from the screenplay, The Three. It's quoted from Cassie from The Three. It says, we are all one thing, Lieutenant. That's what I've come to realize, like cells in a body, except we can't see the body, the way fish can't see the ocean. And so we envy each other, hurt each other, hate each other. How silly is that? A heart cell hating a lung cell. It's deep shit, man. So that's probably about as deep as the movie goes for me. <laughs> <laughs> that little uh, like Buddhist uh, perspective there. I think that's very deep. It is, but yeah, but there there is a there there is a sense there too of uh, how silly is that? Right, right. How silly is that? Um, but we hurt each other, we hate each other, but we also love each other, and that's what uh, that's what he had to learn. Have a little love there. What would have been a satisfying ending? I'm trying to think. Oh, gosh. I don't know. I think, you know what? For me, I would have liked for the film to end as it began. So when that, when the flower, that famous last shot, when the flowers come up and they kind of almost start dancing right Mm -hmm. from just going up and then it says a lot because it's flowers but then also you only see their motion over a long like time is different right um you only see that motion you have to kind of get into it uh but i always wanted there to be and i thought about it last night while i was watching it that they pull back and turn around and you'd see the camera and spike jones and like Nicolas Cage would be in the background, like drinking a coffee and his stunt double dressed like his brother would be like sitting <laughs> next to him. You know what I mean? Yeah. That they would just completely <laughs> give up the illusion at the end. And then yeah. he would say cut. And then that they would have been cool. And then not, and I wanted it to go further because I'm crazy. You uh-huh. always got to commit. The camera gets taken off. They put it like you see, like it goes on, like I like it goes on for like five minutes, right? And then like they disassemble. You see him take the lens off, and that you know, and then it just turns off, and that's the end of the movie. Or maybe you see Nicolas Cage giving direction, like John Malkovich. Oh yeah, (laughs) or then John Malkovich walks in and like John, how you doing? Right? That was great too. When Kathy's like Catherine Keener's at my house, right? And it made you think too, because it's, it's a funny, um, uh, here, I wanted to end it, but we got back in. It's a funny thing. Cause you think to yourself, like, do these people all hang out with each other? Like, it's cool that they kind of included that, that even though they're all part of this big movie that we know being John Malkovich, it's different that he was the writer and she's the star. Yes. Yeah. 
that's that's a good point. You know, like it kind of brings us into their world. It makes him more relatable. You know, absolutely. That was interesting. All right, Brett. This was very cool, man. Thank you. We may have to do primer too. That 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 is a journey, though, brother. Dude, yeah, that's that would be great. I need to rewatch that movie. It's been a very long time since I've seen that movie, but that's another one of my all time favorites. Yeah, that is fantastic. And when you're when you're covering primer, you got to break out those spreadsheets of <laughs> yes. everything. And I do say, anybody listening, I know it's had nothing to do with adaptation, but you you should watch Dark and prime both of these if you love time travel and the reason why i don't include like lost in a list of even though it includes that is because like dark and primer are like exclusively about time travel yes like that's pretty much all that dark is i mean it's great characters and other stuff but that is what the show is like every single scene you know it's just crazy, man. All right. Adaptation. Next up is the Battle of Algiers, which I'll be covering with Devin. We're going to get deep into some film history on, on that one because Devin is like an encyclopedia. Uh, Brett, I'll give you uh, anything you want to say, you know, just before we leave. Well, it's just been a blast. Uh, it's always a pleasure to talk to you, Axel. And uh, I'm glad to, you wanted to talk about this great movie with me. Me and too. I hope you, uh, I hope all the patrons and the extended DVR family enjoyed it. Well, I'm sure that they did. This was awesome, pal. What a great one. Now, man, yeah, can you, it just makes me think too. Only two films since then. You really, I think if you were in 2002 and you'd say, how, by 2019, how many movies you think Spike Jones is going to make? You would have probably said 10 or 12. Yeah. You would think every couple of years. Yeah. I guess he's doing a lot of other stuff, but he made a good one here. Adaptation, baby. Nick Cage, C. Mandy. Thanks for listening. Go to DVRpodcast.com, Patreon.com slash DVR. Check out Veronica Mars. Check out Big Little Lies. We'll be back on Monday with Veronica Mars, baby. Talking with Ken, that's going to be great, too. Thanks for your time, Brett. Thanks for all these awesome notes, too, man. You brought it through. (laughs) No problem. Peace!